So, 8.47, using science to save rhinos. How old cycling footage is helping scientists study climate change. And, first, what does the resignation of Scott Pruitt mean for US environmental policy? Mark Zastro, science journalist, here to answer that one. Good morning. Good morning, Alex. I mean, it was a move that was broadly welcomed when it was announced uh, at the end of last week. Scientists, certainly in the US, were happy. That's right. It uh, It's really hard to overstate the amount of antagonism between Pruitt and the, the vast majority of the scientific community. You know, critics would say that he is a climate change denier. He publicly proclaimed that he does not think that humans are a primary contributor to global warming. He claims the debate uh, is far from settled. Yeah, and he was the head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Exactly. And he was very aggressive at implementing his and Donald Trump's agenda to roll back environmental protections and uh, regulations on climate emissions, uh, for example, coal power plants, and also ozone killing chemicals. So reversing all of these all of these measures. Uh, you know, he was, of course, under scrutiny for so many ethics violations. That's what uh, prompted him to resign. Uh, actually, the list of violations was pretty incredible. You know, there was his office spending, his travel habits, his ties to coal lobbyists. Uh, but one of the reasons that he stayed on for so long, despite those scandals, is because he was so aggressive at implementing these policies that U.S. conservatives had wanted to introduce for so long. So he had their support. Uh, but obviously, yes, the scientific community broadly welcomed his resignation. Uh, Ken Kimmel, the president of the Union of Concerned Scientists, said it was clear from the beginning that Scott Pruitt had no interest in protecting public health and safety. And it's unfortunate that he wasn't dismissed until he became a clear political liability. The problem is he's been replaced by his deputy, Andrew Wheeler, who shares many of the same views, it looks like. Uh, that's right. He's uh, now the interim head of the agency until a uh, until Donald Trump nominates a replacement and the Senate confirms that person. It's possible he could be the nominee and stay on. Uh, in any case, Andrew Wheeler is a former lobbyist for the coal industry. He's also a former chief of staff to Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe, who is also a climate change denier. He is the guy who once threw a snowball onto the Senate floor to demonstrate that global warming wasn't real. So uh, Andrew Wheeler, very much in the same mold ideologically as Pruitt. The difference, uh, according to people around him, is that he is a much quieter figure, a more seasoned Washington insider, whereas Pruitt was very much a brash outsider. So uh, Wheeler knows how to navigate the U.S. political system, and both his allies and his critics say that he could ultimately be even more effective than Scott Pruitt was at implementing Trump's environmental agenda. Some more optimism surrounding our next story, as opposed to the first, with the race to save an endangered rhino species from certain extinction. Scientists have taken a big leap forward by creating hybrid white rhino embryos. That's right. This is a uh, sort of a last-ditch Hail Mary effort to save the northern white rhino, which is native to East and Central Africa. Earlier this year, actually, the last surviving male of the species died in captivity. So that leaves only two females uh, alive, and they're both on a both on a, a on a reserve in Kenya. They're named Najin and Fatu. And unfortunately, they both have health conditions that uh, basically prevent them from bringing baby rhinos to term. One has a fertility condition and another one has uh, a leg injury. So that makes the species what, biologi what bi biologists would call functionally extinct. 
However, scientists have hoped that maybe they could take the eggs from these surviving animals and combine them with sperm samples that they've banked over the years from those last few males so that then they could generate embryos, bring them to term through in vitro fertilization and a surrogate mother. Now, egg extraction has not been done before on a rhino. So instead of testing this procedure on Najin and Fatu, they tested it on uh, members of a closely related subspecies, which is the southern white rhino, native to southern Africa. The ranges, they don't overlap in the wild. So they were able to successfully demonstrate this procedure. They extracted the eggs, and then they combined it with the sperm from the northern white rhino, which creates this hybrid embryo. Uh, it's a big step in proving that this could be done with Najin and Fatu, and that eventually we could see purebred northern white rhinos again. Yeah, I mean, the, the immediate concern that I had hearing you speak there was how limited the gene pool appears to mm, be. Do, mm-hmm. do they have enough samples to yeah. handle that problem? Yeah, so that's a great question. They do not have enough sperm samples from the males to create a population that could you know, reproduce and be genetically viable in the wild. However, they probably have enough tissue samples from lots of different males just lying around over the years. Not sperm samples, but maybe skin samples or something. There are a lot more of those stored in labs. So the hope is that eventually uh, they could take maybe those, those skin cells and then induce them into, those pl- into their pluripotent state where those cells can grow into anything so that they, then they could grow them into sperm cells. So this is essentially the cloning technique that we see in stem cell research, resetting these cells to their embryonic state. Yeah, uh, but you could do that with all sorts of extinct animals, couldn't you, when you have the samples? When you have the samples, and that's, that's the trick. Of course, it's very hard to find, say, a woolly mammoth skin sample lying around after 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they do have enough samples, and the hope is that then they could use this technique to actually create a genetically viable population. That would, it's going to be a lot harder, though, to do that. Yes, it sounds like it. Um, well, finally, we're going to um, discuss how cycling helps us scientifically. The Tour de France, ongoing, the most prestigious cycling event in the world. Uh, millions of people watch it. Scientists are taking keen interest, not just for the entertainment. That's right. So in a new study, actually, a team of climate scientists trying to study how the seasons have changed over the years due to climate change. Uh, they actually poured over 200 hours of archival footage from the Tour de Flanders in Belgium. And they weren't studying the cyclists, they were studying the trees on the side of the road in the footage, identifying different individual trees and determining at what point in the year that they bloomed. Uh, this event happens to run right around the springtime when basically you know everything is budding and blossoming and leafing out. Of course, that's a very important impact of climate change, but it's kind of hard to study because we don't keep as much hard data on trees leafing out as we do on things like the temperature. So for this, they had archival footage from this race dating back to 1981. So it actually wound up being a great scientific database. They were able to identify 46 individual trees uh, that kept showing up year after year on the side of the road as the cyclists were going by. And uh, when they looked at them in the 1980s, almost none of them were leafing out. But by 2016, almost half of them were. So it's actually pretty, pretty dramatic evidence and useful scientifically. It sounds that way. It's, I, recently, I was reminded of a similar comparison with Facebook's on this day feature. Like mm. You can see how seven years ago, if you happened to be in the same place taking a photo, you could have completely different conditions. And it's a reminder, of course, of 
how unpredictable South Korea's That's right. monsoon seasons are these days, but um, but other parts of the world as well. Who knows? That kind of big data, if it could get round the privacy controls to make a big global comparison. That would be interesting. Mark Zastro, science journalist, good to have you here. Great to be here.